Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot, the tennis podcast by fans. My name's Joel Gerling. I'm Kim McKenzie. And today we're going to be taking a trip down memory lane at the Italian Open. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Hope you're doing well wherever you are on this glorious Eurovision weekend. Kim, I know you're a big Eurovision Song Contest fan. You, were, I think you were even meant to be going to it this year, weren't you, in, in Rotterdam? So uh, how have you been coping without the, the prospect of any sort of live live event? Well, getting quite used to it now, Joel, the tennis being cancelled, <laughs> Eurovision being cancelled. Uh, yeah, I had tickets uh, for the first time to go. And yeah, Sod's Law, it was cancelled. But hopefully, hopefully be able to go next year. And we had, you know, a bit of a celebration on, on the TV last night and had some Swedish food and some cocktails to kind of, you know, raise a bit of a, a glass to what what never happened but um but yeah i think i think you were watching as well joel although i don't think you're quite as into it <laughs> <Yeah>. as i am <laughs> yes i was i did catch a little bit of it because uh yeah i i'm kim i'm gonna hold my hand up here johnny logan he comes on the tv and i've have no idea who he is but it turns out he is it sounds like he's pretty much the goat of of the Eurovision Song Contest. Am I right? Yeah, I suppose you could uh, you could say he's a bit like the Federer of of Eurovision. Like if if you maybe <laughs> don't know tennis, you you at least know the name Federer. So maybe Johnny Logan could could be a bit like that. But yeah, I was quite surprised you didn't you'd never heard of him. Um, he's won it well three times, uh, twice as a singer, once as a songwriter. So he is the kind of the winningest. Uh, person in in Eurovision I guess you could say but yeah l- maybe next year we can do a Eurovision podcast as well but let's let's go back to tennis because we're going to be looking at the Italian Open and our top eight moments that have happened in Rome over the last few decades um perhaps I should lead on this one Joel because I'm going to start up with a a moment featuring the man himself Rafa uh one of one of quite <laughs> surprise, a few surprise well yes um Listeners, any of you who are not so keen on Rafa, bear with us because we are soon at the end of the alternative play season. I mean, let's be honest, though, because like Madrid, Rome is Nadal's home. I think you know he's won like, what, nine titles there or, or something ludicrous like mm. that. So, you know, it is... It is, it is hardly a surprise to kind of see him feature on this list. So yes, Kim, what is what is the first moment we're, uh, we're going to be reliving? Well, I thought we'd have a look at 2005, which was Rafa's, you know, first clay court season, really, where he totally kind of took it by storm. Um, he won Rome for the first time. Yeah, his first of, of nine titles, I think, uh, back in 05. And so he came up against Coria, who at the time, I guess, was probably the most established clay quarter of that of that era or at least you know one of them um you know very fearsome competitor for sure um but the final um was another five set 
Masters final five set thriller. It was over five hours long, which if you think about that now, if they were doing that consistently in a Masters final, you know, Monte Carlo, Madrid, Rome, like that would just be insane. I mean, I can't actually believe that they used to do this, to be quite honest with you. Um, but yeah, it was it was a real ding dong, for want of a better word, Joel. Six four three six six three four six, and then Rafa won it seven six on a last set tiebreak. But I think most crucially, perhaps um, about this match, you know, Rafa was a double breakdown in that fifth set. He was three love down, so Coria really could have, you know, gone on, used that momentum, gone all the way and and won. But I think really Coria's kind of weakest point throughout his whole career was was his mental strength and he kind of you know collapsed that combined with with Rafa you know obviously his attitude his diehard attitude like never giving up he was on like a 16 match winning streak at this point so obviously he he had a lot of belief in his game and but I think Correa would be very devastated after this loss and I think actually in his post-match you know interviews he did say this was probably one of the hardest defeats of of his career I think what's interesting to note is I think you know Corey probably going into this match and you know going into clay season he's probably thinking you know I'm unbeatable on a clay court there is no one else out there better than me and who comes along Rafael Nadal 18 year old teenager relatively unheard of and you know I think this match proved that you know even when Corey was playing his absolutely best tennis possible, there was someone else out there better than him. And, you know, I think, you know, he was kind of disheartened by that. And I think this match going to show you, as you said, mentally, he, you know, he wasn't as strong as like, some of his other competitors. And I think, you know, when you're three love up, uh, you know, with a double break in, in the fifth set, you really should be, you know, closing that match out. And, you know, he wasn't able to do that. And I think that's sort of one of the things we might associate with a player who, you know, as brilliant as he is in Guillermo Correa, kind of on the mental side of things, I don't think you, you could put him up there with the greats. And, you know, I kind of look at this match. I look at kind of the 2004 French Open final as well, where you know, he played Gaston Gaudio in the final game was five sets. But again, crucially, he was two sets up. He was six love, six three up and was unable to close out the the match and um you know he's probably one of those players you put in the category of you know greatest players to never have won you know you do wonder if if he had if he had won if he had won this final in in Rome beaten Nadal that would have given him the confidence and again reinforced that belief that that he was and he was at the time the best the best clay court player in the world I think obviously that that loss against Gaudio and then going into this match against Rafa you know I guess he just his his mental side of things just wasn't up to scratch. And also Rafa had beaten him in the Monte Carlo final just a couple of weeks before this. So again, you know, he knew what he was up against and uh, he kind of let it, let it slip away to be quite honest with you. And uh, yeah, so I just thought, you know, obviously this wasn't, this was a great match um, and it was symbolic because again, you have this, you know, it's like the birth of, of Rafa and his kind of play court dominance and this to- totally kind of passing of the mantle of, of who is, you know, the best clay quarter. You know, at the time we had people like Carlos Moya, Juan Carlos Ferrero, uh, Gaudio, Correa, you know, they were sort of all very good established clay quarters. But as soon as Rafa kind of started working his magic, you know, it, I guess it kind of became almost um, impossible perhaps to argue against Rafa being the best clay quarters and i always i always think about the kind of generation of tennis before you know 
Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer broke on the, onto the scene. And, you know, you do think about the, the clay court players back then and you've got some really, you know, it was a really great lineup if you kind of think about it retrospectively. As you said, you had Moya, Ferrero, Tommy Robredo, you know, David Ferrer. You know, these, I think all these players were actually, like they were really good, you know, dirt ball players back in the day. And I think it was a kind of a shame that, you know, Nadal came on the scene and he wasn't able to have, you know, as many matches, I guess, as we'd like with these players we would t- typically associate with being, you know, very physical from the back of the court, you know, ball strikers. Um, you know, as you said, it, it kind of, I think we always kind of associate, you know, Nadal, you know, with Roger Federer and, and that almost starting a new generation of, you know, a new phase, a new era of tennis. But we almost kind of forget about all the amazing kind of other players there were. And I put kind of Corio in that sort of forgotten forgotten men category particularly um particularly on a clay court yeah and i came across um a nice kind of comparison i suppose of Corey's game um i can't remember exactly where but the person who had written this said that if you look at Corey's game it was kind of like crossing nikolai davidenko's kind of compact strokes with novak djokovic's movement so if you can imagine like a, a fusion of those two play of those two players you kind of get a sense of what Corey was like for those people who perhaps haven't watched an awful lot of him play um to be fair myself included because he was slightly before my generation but in a way you know also going back to what you were just saying Joe as a Rafa fan I'm, I'm quite glad Rafa didn't get embroiled in too many of these like long matches with like these dirt ballers because I think that would have dragged Rafa down like <laughs> without wanting to sound elitist I think he needed Federer to you know raise his own bar and transcend just being a clay quarter and I think if Federer hadn't been there and if Rafa hadn't had so much ambition to move beyond the clay, he might have got stuck in this like typical like Spanish or South American clay court kind of frame. Yeah, and I think that would have been such a shame. Obviously, we would it, well the, the course of tennis history would have been very different, perhaps. Yes, and moving on to our second moment, uh, I'm actually going to bring it up, Kim, to 2019 and talk about Joe Conta's run to the final where she defeated two Grand Slam champions in the process in Sloane Stephens and, and Venus Williams. Uh, and yeah, reached reach the final, really kind of proving to, to everyone really, and, and of course British fans, that you know, she really had credentials on a, on a clay court, of course, ahead of uh, the French Open where she got to you know the semi-finals and... I think what was really interesting was the fact that you know this was a surface that we did we did not associate we would not associate with with Joe Conta you know playing well on prior to that clay season I think she had only had kind of like seven wins um, on the surface um, she had gone zero from four at Roland Garros and in this part of the season we were kind of like oh she might win a few matches but we weren't really thinking of her as a kind of like a a title contender. And I think kind of interestingly, you know, she she did so some signs where she got to the final in, in Rabat in Morocco and lost to, to Sakari in the build up to, to Rome. But really kind of when she got to Rome and, and got to the final, I think, you know, most people's eyebrows were raised. I agree. I You know, we've always thought of her as not really being much of a thing on clay. Um, so we weren't, I guess, expecting her to do much on the clay courts, especially as the start of last year, she hadn't had a particularly great uh, season. I think she was struggling with that, that knee injury that's still, you know, an ongoing issue that she has to manage. Um, but if you look at, yeah, her clay season last year, obviously Rabat finalist, um, but Rome, she just kind of took it up a, a, another 
another notch. Um, they had that massive kind of washout on the Wednesday and kind of Super Thursday where a lot of matches happen, which we'll get onto a bit more in detail later. But so in the course of one day, Conter beat Sloane Stevens and Venus Williams, uh, which you don't do very often beating two slam champions on the same day. And then I didn't realise this actually, but until we kind of looked back into this, but she actually played um, Marquetta von Drusseva in the quarterfinals of Rome, which, you know, that was the very player that defeated Conta in the semis of Roland Garros. I know. In that... You'd wish it was the other way around. I know. Yes, exactly. In that really frustratingly tight match at Roland Garros that really, you know, we all felt that Conta should have won. And obviously there were circumstances around that. They were playing on... I don't know, some ridiculously small court because of all the scheduling drama. So they weren't, you know, it wasn't played as it as it should be, I suppose you could say. Um, yeah, so really frustrating that, you know, Conta had actually beaten Von Dries before that. But um, yeah, she um, she beat Burton's in the semi, got into the final against Bliskova. So, you know, she was beating absolutely top names because Burton's had just won Madrid. You know, Burton's was tipped actually to to be a real hot contender for Roland Garros. And then she got that kind of uh, sort of sickness. But I saw the the semi-final and I saw her you know, up against Burton's and I was just thinking, oh, she's had a good run. Yeah. Uh, but she'll, you know, it'll, it'll come to an end <laughs> yeah, here. But yeah. Um, yeah, when she beat, when she beat Burton's for me, I did, that was the point and I was starting to wonder as a British fan, hang on, you know, is she a, is she a French Open, you know, title contender? And you know, she. I think her. You know, her ranking improved to you know, twenty six in the world after after her run in Rome, and it secured her a seeding at, at the French Open. And I think that really kind of, of course, that really helped her in terms of the the draw. And yeah, it just showed you. I think it was that kind of road. You know, the the kind of progression that kind of Contra has made. She is a real threat on. I think all clay all all court surfaces. You know, she's very good on a, a grass court. She's very good on a clay court on a hard court. And, um, you know, for me, kind of the clay court was almost kind of the, the last piece. It was the last missing piece of the jigsaw. And I think that's why, you know, she is such a, a good player is kind of that all round threat that she carries across the whole season. And she, and the reason because the reason she is able to do that is because, you know, she's able to do it on all the court surfaces. And, you know, this this year in, in 2019, she showed that she could do it on, on a clay court. Yeah, and then obviously on the grass court and, you know, hard court, she, she then reached two slam quarters as well. So very consistent across all surfaces and capable of, of doing damage on all on all surfaces. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. And, and, you know, putting it into context as well, like to even reach the final in Rome, she was the first, uh, you know, British woman to get that far since like Virginia Wade back in 1971. So, you know, really like making you know history as well for for british tennis and then obviously at the french open the first british female to reach the semi since joe jury in 83 so no very historic moments actually from last season and i don't know just thinking about it this is really really making me miss uh miss the tennis actually like just thinking about those kind of oh will she won't she moments of last year when we were following it all and I don't know it's just bringing back all the memories so <laughs> um but yeah let's move on actually to talk about the uh the weather in Rome last year which is kind of our third point because we had the Wednesday that was all set to be kind of you know lovely you know Federer was playing uh you know he was back in the tournament for the first time in like three years so the 
tournament organizers were very very happy and so happy in fact that they'd actually raised the ticket prices uh for the day that Federer was due to play which is a bit of a con I think but um there we go <laughs> so this, this moment it's like so controversial and it's I like know. classic you would never get this you would never get this in in the UK but this it was so funny that this happened in Rome the fact that you know as you said like it was a complete washout on complete washout on Wednesday they had had Roger Federer sign up to the tournament I think it was like the first time in a few years <laughs> and uh yeah the, the the weather gods they did not want that match to happen did they Kim on, on the Wednesday well I think it was their sort of way of uh telling the organizers it was very immoral of you to raise the ticket prices just for Federer because I think in the end the organizers had to refund everyone their tickets for that day because not a single ball was hit and then they had this like jam-packed schedule for the next day. So whoever had a ticket for the Thursday was like, I don't know, just paying the same amount, but getting so much more tennis. Um, but yeah, just ha- if you have a look at what happened on that day, like tennis-wise, obviously we've already just discussed Joe Conta like beating Stevens and Venus on the same day. Um, but we also had, um, I thought interestingly, we had Ash Barty losing to Christina Mladenovic in straight sets. Obviously Ash Barty would then go on to win Roland Garros. So I thought that was quite interesting. And obviously Mladenovic went on to beat Barty at the Fed Cup final later that year so obviously she has a bit of a record against Barty but um we also saw um well von Drusova you know the Roland Garros finalist she um beat Kazakina and Halep in three set matches so she played six sets that day uh so possibly a bit tired then when she played Conta in that quarterfinal on the Friday um but if you go to the ATP side of things um I love this uh Rafa played two matches and lost just two games uh, yes i remember <laughs> actually i do remember i do remember that he was definitely ser- serving out of the bakery that day because uh yeah he was on and off court like like in a flash wasn't he across uh, those two matches i mean jeremy shardy and Basashvili, they got it absolutely handed to them uh <laughs> well, six love six one six one six love God, that's that's pretty. That's that's, you'd take that, wouldn't you? To get <laughs> you'd take that to get to a quarterfinal, wouldn't you? Well, compare that to Vadasco, who was Rafa's quarterfinal opponent. Um, Vadasco had two upsets. He played uh, Dominic Team and Karen Hatchinov, uh, but both victories kind of went into well, it was th- both three set victories. Um, so in total, I think he played about five hours that day. Uh, compared to Rafa, who was probably done and dusted in, I don't know, less than two, perhaps. Um, but yeah, also great, great victories for Vadasco against, you know, two much younger opponents and especially Dominic Team, obviously very, very uh, competent on a clay court. But yeah, I thought that was a nice moment for Vadasco in that tournament because um, I always like to see him do well. I think he's he's one of those players that I always kind of, I don't know, root for, um, sort of classic um, but then also we did have Federer as well. Um, so the fans who had come a long way to come back and see Roger uh, in Rome, they did get to see him. He was uh, on court against Borna Koric and Zhao Sousa, winning both those matches. But I think he got a bit tired because he pulled out of his quarterfinal the next day against Sitsipas. So um, a memorable day of tennis, to say the least. And obviously there's a lot more matches that we, that were played that day. Um that provided entertainment as well that we we could go into if we wanted to be here for hours on end. Don't you love it? I feel like the weather is like it can work in a tennis fan's favour and it also could like not work in a tennis fan's favour because 
I've had, I remember I've had days at Grand Slams where the weather has meant there's been an absolutely bumper schedule. And, and as a tennis fan, you know, on a ground pass, you're absolutely kind of licking your lips at the prospect of, you know, seeing tennis from, you know, from dawn till dusk. And, you know, it does kind of throw up these moments. And it's really interesting to see, you know, can, how players can adapt for it. And you just feel like it's almost kind of like something in the air that's kind of more likelihood to kind of be upsets because these are situations where the players are going to be out inevitably going to be out of their comfort zone um having to you know potentially pull you know double duty on on the same day exactly it's just one of those kind of situational things that crop up that you have to be prepared to deal with and that's when you want to be a player that is very adaptable and has good mental agility to kind of deal with those situations and and also physically, you know, fit enough to cope as well um, for the increased like load on your body that day. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those tennis fan things as well, isn't it? The weather, the weather gods, um, which is why when there's a roof, everything is so much more, I don't know, relaxing. Um, but uh, yeah, I've had many, frust- many a frustrating day stuck at tennis with no prospect of play. I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> I love how the robe open sorry italian open in rome organizers made all the players stay um and be kind of alert and available on the wednesday so they could try and get a match out so they wouldn't have to refund oh so dodgy isn't it like i mean i know in, in the uk we have um if there's like less than an hour's tennis you get like is it a partial refund like 50 percent so I don't know what exactly their policy was, if they just had to complete one match or get like two games played or something. But I certainly wouldn't have I think been very happy. their policy was to make it up on the spot. Oh, yeah. gosh. But anyway, and obviously Roland Garros last year was also somewhat affected by by weather as well, wasn't it? Um, especially at the latter end. But uh, yeah, so that was last year. That was, that was Rome. And uh, we'll be revisiting, I think, last year's tournament again a bit later it did actually provide quite a lot of entertainment last year um but joel perhaps we should go back to 2006 in our next memory of rome uh where we saw another classic final yes and that was between of course rafael nadal and roger federer best of again it was a best of five set final went to a, a final set tie break and i think the interesting thing here was that Federer actually had match points against Rafa in a best of five set match on clay. And, you know, it was probably, and it still is, the the closest that Federer has come to winning against Nadal on a clay court in in a best best of five set situation. That still has not happened, unbelievably. And, you know, this was probably kind of the closest he ever got to it. Um, you know, I think Nadal, it was his 13th straight t- triumph. You know, he had tied Bjorn Borg's record for 16 titles won as a teenager. So, you know, it was really kind of the moment, I think, for a lot of people where this rivalry was kind of really kind of cemented and, you know, was blossoming. And we were being treated to these absolutely kind of epic matches. Like, you know, matches almost of a, a Grand Slam quality, but being played out across kind of, you know, at, tour level events and you know really kind of seeing it in in Rome it was one of it was probably one of the best you know matches that has happened on the tour and I think the five sets added to the drama of it the fact that Federer had match points as well definitely added to the drama of it and you know I think it's interesting because you know match points you know being match point up and being kind of in that in the big three, you don't normally associate them with squandering and losing, but you know, it is a, it is a sort of weak point, isn't it? Of, uh, 
you know, of Roger Federer, isn't it, Kim? Yeah, I think just in this match in particular, you know, he had two match points. I think it was in the fifth set at, uh, well, he was 6-5 up. Um, Rafa hit a double fault to give Federer the two match points and then Federer kind of squandered both with with an error. Like he was trying to play really, you know, attacking, aggressive tennis in that match, obviously more errors as a result of that. But um, it just, you know, that definitely was the closest I think he would ever come on clay. But at the same time, you know, Rafa was on this ridiculous streak. He was, I think at that point, 53 straight match wins on on clay, which was um, tying Guillermo Vilas's record. So like he was, I think, probably getting into Federer's head already by that point. But um, yeah, if you look at the statistics of kind of say the big three and the number of matches they've lost from having had match points, you know, Djokovic has only actually lost three matches in his whole career uh, from being match points up, which I think is pretty remarkable. Rafa's lost eight, but Federer's lost 22. So that is a massive amount um, compared to the others. I know Federer's been playing for longer, but does that just show that, yeah, mentally he is not quite as strong as the other two? And if that's the case, like where does that feature in the kind of the GOAT argument if you're comparing all three of them? It's it's quite interesting. I think it's certainly something you have to consider. Um I love this though, Joel. The first match that Federer um, had match points in and lost was against our very own Tim Henman in 2000 in the Vienna <laughs> Open. <laughs> Absolutely lovely stuff. Um, but yeah, like he he's lost to you know quite a few different players uh, from being match point up, and I do think it kind of shows you that you know he is human. In, in some respects, after all, and again, it, kind of this match against Nadal, where he had two match points against a teenager, no doubt, you know, no less, with you know far less experience than him. The fact that he was able to lose, maybe it kind of showed fans that oh, maybe maybe Roger Federer isn't has got still kind of work work to do because you know he just don't associate him. You don't associate a player of his caliber really with kind of letting kind of key kind of moments slip, and of course he's won. You know, he has won matches from, uh, you know, when other players, when his opponent has had, had match points. But um, it certainly seems that, you know, if you kind of contextualize it to, to Nadal and Djokovic, he's, he's certainly kind of lagging in terms of getting over the finish line at the most pivotal moment. Yeah. And obviously Wimbledon last year was the kind of classic example of that, wasn't it? In that dramatic final. Um, but as you say, there would, there would probably be other statistics uh, that would show the reverse that, you know, Federer would feature better on so you'd have to look you know across the board to make a fair comparison of everything but um also Federer was 4-1 up in that fifth set in the Rome final and um you know arguably also in the first two sets he he really should have won the second set to be quite honest as well because um that one went to a tie break but Federer I think he was he was up uh had a, almost had a opportunities really to to get that second set so it could have been a very different story but I think that's the the key thing is obviously, you know, Rafa makes you just work so incredibly hard, especially on a clay court, to get like everything, just anything, so that by the time the match goes on, you just get more and more worn out. Um, so yeah, this was a great match, and it was it was also around like the five hour mark. So two thousand and five, two thousand and six, the finals were you know of insane kind of drama and quality. And I think was it the next year that they stopped doing the five set finals. Um, I'm sure 2006 was was possibly the last year that they did that in the Master Series, but I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure. 
Um, but it was certainly kind of getting to that point where I think they were like, right, this isn't very sustainable. Um, but it certainly did provide us with excellent stuff to, to you know, revisit years down the line. So, Joel, uh, let's moving let's move on to a very surprising moment, actually, that I was looking back over the kind of the list of winners in Rome and going over to the WTA side, you know, actually in the in the kind of the the last kind of few decades, Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova, I think, are the the players with the most number of Rome titles uh, of, of recent years. And I think there was a period of possibly six or seven years where they kind of alternated and it was just them two players that had this like deadlock over Rome, um, which makes you think, oh, actually, you know, Sharapova in her prime, you know, was really racking up a number of titles. And I think, you know, the last couple of years, obviously she's been obviously now retired, but so sort of far from from that, you sort of forget how good she was uh, once upon a time. But um, yeah, 2010, let's go back to 2010 because one name really stood out for me as, as having won this tournament. And it was Maria Jose Martinez Sanchez, which I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily be too familiar with. Uh, I, th- I think ourselves included. But that year, she beat Yelena Yankovic in the final, 7 6, 7 5, to, uh, well, definitely win the biggest title of her of her career. Do you remember much of this, Joel? <laughs> Kim, I tried to find highlights of this match and. Her kind of tournament run on YouTube, and I was really, really struggling. And uh, yeah, again, it's a, it's a it is a player I'm not familiar with. And from what it sounds like, from reading her kind of biography, um, she was more of a she's more of a double specialist than a, a singles player. And I think that's obviously what made it so surprising that she she won, you know, the she won in Rome. And um, it, it sounded like the the theme of her matches was death by drop shot. She was really kind of her her really kind of game was based on almost kind of surprising her opponents with drop shots she was coming she came to the net as a lot as a serve volleyer probably you know from her doubles background and uh i, I mean yeah it was just kind of very surprising when you, as you said when you kind of look at the the honors board for for women's champions you see serena williams you see maria sharapova simona halep whoever you know it's like um see this day i was a bit kind of i always had to do a double take because yeah as i said it's a player i'm not not really that that familiar with yeah i think at the time she was ranked 26 so she's obviously having a bit of a renaissance in in singles um i think she's at one point been as high as 19 in singles but obviously carved out more of a doubles niche for herself but certainly used those you know serve volley skills coming into the net a lot to do a lot of damage in, in this tournament um, I think she beat, you know, it was Jankovic in the final, but she, she beat Ivanovic in the semi. So, you know, up against, you know, higher ranked, you know, top players to, to win this title. Um, but yeah, I just thought, well, good, good on her, you know, best moment of her career, I suppose. I think in doubles, she has won the WTA finals. Um, so she has, you know, won a, a big title in doubles as well, but obviously more successful overall in doubles. Um, but yeah, I thought good, good on her. And actually, she retired uh, earlier this year, which we both completely missed. So I guess here's a very belated shout out to her on her retirement. She chose a good time to retire, I suppose. <laughs> OK, let's move on to our next moment and uh, another one for British fans uh, looking at 2016 specifically. It's Andy Murray's win uh, against Novak Djokovic, his first Rome title. You know, I think for many Murray fans like myself, 2016 was probably and will be his 
best season. And I just remember this match because it was so, and this tournament really, because it was just so routine. And I don't think that was because, uh, like, I know he, the caliber of players he was playing against maybe wasn't, you know, as, as tough as it could have been. But I think it was more to do with the fact that the level of tennis that, that Murray was playing at. And, you know, he beat jo- Djokovic, who was number one seed in the final three and three. And I think it just showed kind of Andy Murray at his ruthless best. And the, the point almost kind of sums it up. And for me, it's one of the, the best match points he's probably ever played is probably I actually would rank it higher than the the classic sort of lob against David Goffin in, in the Davis Cup final. But um, it was uh, this this the this, his match against Djokovic when Djokovic was at the net, had all the court to play into and Murray somehow was able to kind of hit a, a double handed backhand down the line winner. If you haven't seen it, you should look at it on YouTube because it really is a, it, it'd just be like a really great way to end, a, end the match. And it just showed you, you know, Murray was playing a level that I don't think anyone was able to, you know, to, to play with at that, at that point. And even though he was kind of seeded number two and, and Djokovic was world number one, you know, it wasn't long before uh, he would become, you know, the, the world number one player. And, it really just kind of captivated, it captured how good he was uh, during that season. And yeah, it was just, uh, I, I just remember watching it on TV. It was kind of, I was just like salivating at how good the tennis was. And I wasn't bothered by the fact that it was kind of almost routine and, you know, it wasn't a nail biter. It hadn't gone to three sets. You know, it, it was just Murray being consistent and getting the job done in a, in a really routine fashion, which, you know, is a hard thing to do when you've got someone like Novak Djokovic on the other side of the court. Yeah, I think, I mean, if it's your favourite player, you don't really want unnecessary anguish, do you, when you're like following them? You just want a nice, comfortable victory. Um, yes, I think, you know, also Madrid, uh, previous to this tournament, Novak had beaten Murray, I think, in a three-set match. So I think this was really nice revenge. And obviously Andy had like worked on, you know, what had not gone so well in the Madrid final to to rectify that for this one. Um and obviously as you say, like this was the season in which, you know, he won the Olympics again, uh, Wimbledon again, you know, ended the year as number one. So this was, you know, his greatest season. It was amazing. And Rome was just one of those moments on on that kind of timeline over the course of the season, and I'm, I was Kim. I was going to say, I think what makes it also kind of a, a, almost kind of a, a turning point for him, I think, was the fact that Moresmo, his coach, uh, they had decided and had announced to part ways before, you know, before the Italian Open, and you know that would have obviously raised questions on, you know, can you know, can Murray do this on his own? You know, I think he. He, you know, Jamie Delgado was kind of was going to came in to kind of fill in the Moresmo role, you know, in the in the interim. And you know, I think this was just kind of almost kind of the perfect repost to all his you know, critics or or the journalists kind of in the media asking, you know, what what's next, Randy Murray? He's not got a coach, and you know, he, it just shows you that as a player, he's got a great kind of tactical brain. He knows what what to do, and yeah, it was just kind of the perfect perfect response to to people you know thinking what's his you know what what is his next step yeah and I think also if you know him and Moresmo parting ways you know hadn't really perhaps worked out or they were just you know going the separate ways and that can often give you a bit of a boost you know you feel kind of a sense of freedom I suppose so that perhaps you know that really helped propel him during this this week I think also this was around the time that his first child was born so obviously positive stuff going on at home um 
and yeah, like this kind of really kickstarted a fantastic season for Andy and um it was it was a great quality final as she said i'm gonna go and fish out that match point though because i <laughs> i i i remember watching you know elements of this match but i i don't remember the match point so i'm gonna go and i'm gonna go check that one out again i think <laughs> okay right let's get on to our next moment which was the following year from andy murray's triumph in 2017 again novak Djokovic was in the final uh but again he was he was defeated and he was defeated by Alexander Zverev who captured his first Masters title again in a in a routine fashion four and three against against Djokovic and you know this was at a time where you know Alex Zverev was you know he was 19 years old he became the youngest uh, youngest Masters titleist and you know he again he showed us at that time he was, you know, the, you know, he was the next sort of player to kind of break through at that very, very top level. And I think the kind of the backdrop was of this was the fact that, you know, the ATP had kind of come up with this idea around the next gen and, you know, the inaugural next gen finals were going to be at the end of the season. And, you know, all the kind of the talk at that moment was like, who is going to be the leader of the next gen? And, you know, for me, and I think for everyone, you know, this match kind of showed you that, at that time, Alex Zverev was going to be the leader of the next gen. Yeah, I think this win actually put him into the top 10 as well. So he was certainly the youngest player in there and the first one of that bunch to kind of actually win a Masters title. Um, and actually, you know, you sort of have a go at Zverev a bit, a bit now for the fact that he hasn't done a lot in in slams. And I mean, obviously, aside from AO this year, but actually you do forget that, you know, he did break through very, very young and, you know, he did win a Masters at a very young age and he's obviously won the World Cup Finals as well. So he's still done an awful lot. Um, but the, the perhaps one of the craziest things is that he was the first player born in the 1990s to win a Masters series. Um, I think Zverev was born in, what, 97? So there's a lot of players between like 1990 to 96 that never went and managed to do what he did. Um because of, I guess you know, the, just the dominance of the big three, the big four, that they couldn't they couldn't break through even at masters level. So you have a whole cohort of players like Dimitrov, for example, or Nishikori that that never managed to to get through that and to clinch a masters level title, which is which is pretty sad, but also a reflection of just the dominance of you know Fedor Djokovic, Novak, um, Rafa, and and Murray. So. I guess this is kind of just representative of, of that, really. Yes, it was kind of, you You needed to have that level up and it, it feels like, you know, when all is said and done, those those players between, you know, 1990, 1996, that generation, you know, some people will be saying, you know, that that is going to be the forgotten generation because, you know, their achievements have been hindered by, you know, players, as you said, like the, you know, Federer, Murray, Djokovic, Nadal and, you know, Zverev kind of showed us that, you know, the it almost kind of bookended that, I think, in terms of, you know, coming out and, you know, beating Djokovic in that final. He kind of showed showed us, he's almost kind of wiped the slate clean with, you know, those those players that kind of said, I'm here and I, you know, I'm ready to kind of, you know, make that, that uh, you know, ready to kind of step up because, you know, the, the other generation before me, um, you know, have not. And, you know, I look at the the as I said. You know, I look at the next gen finals, and um, you know, the, the inaugural tournament was that year, and Alex Zverev, 
you know, qualified but didn't play for it because he he ended the season I think ranked in the in the top top five. Uh, but Kim and our and our listeners, can you could you? I've got to give you a little quiz. Can you tell me any of the players that did? play in that very first next gen finals in in 2017 oh gosh uh let's go back to our quiz episodes now uh <laughs> well, was Zverev obviously qualified didn't um you know uh medvedev was he would have he would have been yep, around medvedev. Yeah. um yep. I, he just scraped in at number eight. Oh, okay I was i want to say casper rudd but i think he's a bit more recent or kek manovic but i think I think they're more recent, are they? Um, uh, ooh, uh, Hyun Chung, the Korean player, because he. Yep. Yep. Correct. Um, De- Alex De Menor, was he? I know he's been in no, it. De Menor no, was, okay. I would have thought De Menor as well, but no, he were well, didn't make the cut. Um, oh, I suppose Sitsapas would have been on there, would he not? So Sitsapas was an alternate. Uh, amazingly at the time he was not uh ranked high enough to to make it uh automatically so um no he did not he did not play okay fair enough uh <laughs> oh uh, i'm struggling with this one um <laughs> um right, I, uh, tell me joel i'm gonna be here all day okay <laughs> <laughs> so we had so the top eight uh, to qualify was Zverev, Rublev, ah. Kachanov, ah. Shapovalov, oh, Chorich, Jared Donaldson. What? Who? Uh, yep. Wow. Uh, and then Chung, and then Medvedev, and we had an Italian wild card, Gianluigi Quinzi, who I have never heard of in my life, and is probably he's probably still on the challenger circuit i think you could probably say a lot of the most of those players have done pretty well for themselves since kind of 2017 perhaps the greatest of all though is is Sissipas, who you know was an alternate he was 89th uh ranked uh at kind of going into the at the end of, of, of the 2017 season but um you know the fact that i think you know zverev was kind of almost like the original leader of of the next gen but i feel like Certainly now, I think Sissipas. I mean, for me, I think Sissipas has has taken that mantle. I mean, some might some might disagree with me, or uh, you know, think Zverev is is still at the top. But um, you know, I think for me, Sissipas has kind of come up and and overtaken him. I would say Medvedev has overtaken them both in terms. Oh, of- um, could be another so could be another debate. podcast topic. Yeah, yeah, for the future. Could be a future debate. Yeah. What do you think, listeners? <laughs> um, but yeah, certainly some some surprising. I mean, names. Jared Donaldson. Like I know the name, but I I he has not lived up to the the next gen mantle. That that's for sure. Um, but let's let's move on to actually our last moment does feature uh, some next geners. Uh, I mentioned Casper Rude just a moment ago, and he does feature in this moment, although he's not the main protagonist. That goes to the um, infamous Australian Nick Kyrgios. Uh, and this happened last year. Um, it's not a very nice moment, but it did provide some, I guess, entertainment and debate. <laughs> he got thrown out yeah. of the tournament for um, hurling a chair on the court and storming out of his match against Kasper Ruud in the second round. Um, so it was one all in the third set. Um I think Kyrgios took umbrage at something going on in the crowd, some people moving. Um, he had a bit of a go at them. The chair umpire docked him a game, which Kyrgios didn't like. Uh, he kicked a water bottle and then picked up one of those like fold-up chairs, threw it across the court, 
picked up his bag and walked off. Um, although credit where credit's due, he did still shake hands with his opponent and the umpire. Um, what do you make of that, Joel? I mean, the total temper tantrum on court there. I can't really think of yeah, it. Yeah, this is like... I think, I think this is like the curious like golden age of tantrums because i think actually this season he's mellowed out a little bit you know with you know his efforts at you know australian open and, and setting up kind of you know charity initiatives and stuff like that but um i genuinely think this was like his purple patch for for like tantrums on a tennis court and this you know this kind of captured it all really and um you know the fact that he got def- he got defaulted uh you know casper was really not happy with it he said uh he said in this conference it doesn't seem like anything makes him change these days. Um the ATP should do something. I'm not the only one who thinks he should be suspended for at least half a year. So you know, it really sounded like the players had it wanted it in for, you know, for for Kyrgios. Interestingly though, Federer came out in his defense and basically said uh you know he, he he didn't think he should be he she didn't think he should be suspended for you know throwing a chair across the court um so you know it obviously sounded like it divided opinion you know i think you know obviously we know that um the atp kind of docked his prize money um and i think you know there was i think there were in, more incidents to come i think in cincinnati i think in queens as well but um you know i think for me i was a bit <laughs> I just sort of I think it was more funny than anything and I you know I think the Italian crowds I think they kind of lap this up more than other sorts of crowds I think if you'd have done this at Wimbledon for example I think it'd be a more of a a shock you know a shocked crowd and like almost kind of a disgust but I think you know in the context of you know Rome where it's quite boisterous and vocal um and uh I think they kind of, I think they kind of feed on this sort of feed on this sort of energy that Kyrgios gives them. I agree. Even if it's not a positive one. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember watching some Fognini matches there, and the crowds are just, you know, so into it. And I think actually, if this had been against Fognini, there would have been absolute carnage. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I, I get, you know, why people would find it, you know, slightly amusing. But I think, you know, I disagree with Federer. Like, yes, okay, he didn't hurt a chair, but the intention you know, of of perhaps hurting something might have been there. And what happens if that chair had gone on to hit someone? I, I, you know, so I I do think um, I do think there should have been, obviously his prize money was, was taken away from him, but um, obviously this was the first nail in the coffin. Um, we had what happened at Cincinnati later on. Then he did get, um, he did get a sort of a ban of sorts, didn't he? So um yeah it didn't did, come immediately yeah. after this but this was definitely sowing, sowing the seeds for for future events wasn't it i think also this was around the time when he did that uh interview and he was calling uh, uh rapper some yeah. names Djokovic, sort of speaking out against them so obviously Kyrgios wasn't in a particularly happy place then perhaps um i think this was when he called rafa salty um, which has become a bit of a, mm. a buzzword, I suppose, um, that's thrown around a lot on, I don't know, tennis, Twitter and such like. I do think, though, he has he has mellowed out a little bit oh, yeah. since, since then. I mean, who knows what he's going to be like when, when uh, you know, when he comes back onto the tour. But it, it feels like, you know, the 2020 season, he has sort, sort of, dare I say, turned over, turned over a new leaf. But um, we... 
we shall see we shall we shall see i hope to see um but uh i at the same time i would love to see some more chair throwing antics not enough chairs are throwing kim on the tennis court <laughs> well maybe you should just get out some aggression joel go into your garden and throw some deck chairs <laughs> yeah. around it sounds like you want to have a go at yourself uh, yeah definitely <laughs> Yes. Uh, but yes, listeners, let us know. Uh, did we miss any moments off for you uh, at the Italian Open? Let us know. You can uh, contact us, of course, on social media, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Passing Shot Pod. Or if you want to email the show as well, you can do so PassingShotPod at gmail.com. Uh, if you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, make sure you subscribe to us. Click that subscribe button. And if you are listening to us on Apple and you are enjoying the show, make sure you leave us a rating and a comment. Uh, but we shall be back uh, at some point in the future, no doubt. So uh, I'm going to leave you there. Kim, you got any final words? No, Joel, just perhaps a bit of... I don't know, homework for our listeners. Uh, if you don't know who Johnny Logan is, go and Google him and listen to his music. There we go. <laughs> okay, right. I'm going to go away now and listen to some Johnny Logan. Uh, but yeah, hope you could join us. Hope you could join us for a, a future episode further down the line. So we'll see. hope to see you again shortly. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 